As we look into the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, we come to a very familiar prophecy. It's Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 16. It reads this way. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, quote, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, unquote. Do not, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then... They will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, or as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray before we begin our time in his word. Our Father, we look forward to the anticipation of your son's coming again. For he came 2,000 years ago as this prophecy foretold. And Lord, we look forward to that time when he will come again. And so, Father, impress upon our hearts the hope that he brings during the season of Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Christmas is an exciting time of year, but not everybody, as you know, wants to call it Christmas. Retailers around are starting to say, Happy Holidays, rather than Christmas. And there's a backlash by some against that as they take polls and some retail establishments, they no longer advertise it as Christmas because they want to be politically correct. A number of years ago, there was an article in the newspaper as well, Reuter News, December 6, 1999, entitled, Judge Throws Out Suit Against Christmas Holiday. 
read Cincinnati, Ohio, quote, ruling that Christmas is celebrated by non-Christians as well as Christians, a judge in December 1999 threw out a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of observing December 25th as a federal holiday. U.S. District Judge Susan Dlott said in her dismissal of the lawsuit that just as Christians observe Christmas as a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, non-Christians celebrate the occasion to welcome the arrival of Santa Claus. Therefore, she said, Christmas cannot be regarded as a holiday that establishes one religious faith above others in violation of the demand for a separation of church and state enshrined in the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment. The judge used some original poetic verse to make her point, writing, Whatever the reason, constitutional or other, Christmas is not an act of Big Brother, unquote. A lawyer, who followed, a lawyer who filed the suit said he would appeal the dismissal to the Cincinnati-based U.S. District Sixth Court Circuit of Appeals on the grounds that the judge did not take the issue with the strict scrutiny it deserves. Quote, she never said what she really meant when she implied that Christmas should be considered as a secular holiday as much as a religious occasion, unquote. Christmas is something that is not exactly politically correct and it's becoming more so in our day. When you look at our world and culture all around as well, Christmas has become very secularized and it has fallen on some hard times. It's not politically correct. People don't celebrate, quote unquote, Christmas. They celebrate the holidays or they celebrate whatever it might be that they celebrate. But to call it Christmas in the public forum is not exactly what you'd call acceptable to everyone now. Our world is changing. Our world is changing. Our world is fraught with problems. Many of you, if you just reflect and turn on the evening news, you see our world is becoming something different than what it was. Not simply the moral decline that we often talk about in terms of the media and the values that are often touted even by politicians who hold particular positions, but we see in the evening news too the state that our world is in. We're not too much unlike perhaps biblical times even. Biblical times, there was constantly war that was occurring. And we turn on the news today, we see that people are still suffering in famine conditions. We still see situations of slavery in the world. Slavery even in the United States occurs. When people are abducted, and the poverty strickens most of the world. We still face a epidemic of AIDS, which is still a major problem. Abortion is widely accepted in the world. Euthanasia is accepted in certain countries. The world faces all sorts of natural disasters. And of course, since 9-11, it seems that you turn on the evening news, there's always a, some story about some terrorist act around the world become more pronounced. We still have issues with drugs and crime and alcoholism and Things like human trafficking, as I mentioned. And people thought that the world was getting better after the turn time of the Enlightenment and the modernization of things, of intellectual progress. That's why Christians before believed in a sort of a post-millennialism, that Christ would come because the world's getting better and better and better until World War I hit and then World War II hit and Christians thought, well, you know what, it's really not getting better it's getting worse. 
People around the world are steeped still in idolatry, worship of other religions. In fact, I read an article back in the Seattle Times just on Friday about the superstition that even even traps some. There's an article entitled, Pear Chop Off, Run Off with Holy Man's Magic Leg. Two men attacked an 80-year-old self-proclaimed holy man in southern India and chopped off his right leg, apparently believing it had magical powers, police said Thursday, unquote. When you look at the statistics for cults and false religions, they continue to expand. And people are fascinated by this sort of stuff. People are fascinated by magicians, street magicians like Chris Angel, others who would do things that seemingly would be of the dark, magic type. Absolute truth has been slowly replaced by a doubting, skeptical culture that says, you know what, I don't think that that's what the Bible says. They have no other better answer, but they just know it can't possibly be that. And Christianity has a long way to go as well in its progress in the evangelization of the world. Wycliffe Bible Translators, a Christian parachurch ministry, says that there are some 200 million People who don't have the Bible in their own language, depending upon what statistic you look at as well, Christianity, Christianity in the world is a small percentage, even though it's perhaps the world's quote-unquote greatest uh, religion in terms of adherence. There are some 6.6 billion people in the world and Probably four and a half to six billion people, depending on which statistic you believe, still have not heard about Jesus as as a coming Savior. So the times in which we live generally aren't real great. In fact, the picture is kind of bleak when you look at it in certain terms. It's rather a dark time as... We look even in our own culture here in America. Dark times that perhaps are not very much different, as I mentioned, than biblical times. This times that Isaiah prophesied, this particular prophecy, wasn't too much unlike our time. A dark time, and that's how Christ came. He came into the world. And that is what this prophecy speaks of in its context. Into a world that was very, very dark. Very bleak, where there was little hope for anything. And it's a prophecy, first of all, to the faithful. It's in verse 16. It says, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord. And what he is speaking of, he's speaking of a prophecy that came to the people of God. There were faithful followers. Yes, there was a remnant. A small group of people who still believed in God. And this prophecy comes... And a time to give them hope. A time to give them hope during an era in which their nation was godless. Where even their king was an idolater. There were very few. And this prophecy came during that time. Because hope is a powerful motivator to continue on. To do what is right and to continue to be faithful. You know, a man walked into my office just last month or so. I think he was a Catholic and walked in and he wanted to know about biblical counseling. Because he wanted to know how I would meld a 
his secular training, which he had been studying for years with his faith, Christian faith, how he would maybe somehow use his Catholic beliefs in the Bible. So I asked him about this question. I asked him, how, how, how is it in your training? I asked him objectively, trying not to be offensive. I just asked him, uh, how is it that in your training they give hope? How is it that they give an answer for somebody who has a, a problem or an issue that they give hope? And he said, well, we don't, we don't learn about that. We don't give hope. They don't emphasize that because, you see, that's not a guarantee that we can give. You try one method, and if that method, this behavioral cognitive theory doesn't work, then you perhaps try a different method to try and change their behavior. And if that doesn't work, you try a different theory, and you go on and so forth until you find something that works for them. So you can't give them a guarantee. But this guarantee that God gave to these people here in the book of Isaiah was one of hope. It was to his faithful remnant. So they would continue on. And God's prophecies, and just like God's prophecies to them had come true, so too the prophecies that are given to us in Jesus give assured hope. That we look forward to the day when Jesus will come again. And that helps you to be faithful. That helps you to rise above your circumstances and to say, no matter how dark the day, I can do what God wants me to do because I have a future. But the time was dark. The prophecy was in the darkness. Verse 19. Verse 19 of chapter 8. It begins to say, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? The prophecy was given during a dark time. And understand, as we even come to this passage, which we'll cover next week, and for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Understand that that promise was given during a, black, a backdrop of blackness in the country. The, the king at that time, his name was King Ahaz. King Ahaz, in 2 Kings chapter 16, it tells you about how wicked of a king he was. He was a bad, bad, rotten to the core king. He brought in idolatry to Israel. He took the temple and he shut the temple doors and he barred them shut. So that everything inside would waste away. And he set up an idol to Molech. And Molech was a god that he set up right outside the East Valley of Hinnom, right outside the Jerusalem walls. And he set him up there along with a furnace right at the god's feet. And inside that furnace, they would take their children. He even took, I believe, his own child and threw that child into the furnace because they believed in child sacrifices to appeal the god of the God of Molech, the God of the Ammonites. And at the feet, children were killed. Gold and silver statues were worshipped in Israel during that time. And Isaiah comes and he, he appeals to Ahaz and he says, Ahaz, turn from your way and trust God. If you look for a sign, God will give you a sign. And Ahaz mocks God and says, I, I don't want a sign. I won't test God. And God says, I'll give you a sign. A virgin will be with child. That will be the sign. Where there's idolatry, as in the time of, of Ahaz, there is a worship of demons. 
It's not just a stone, you see. It's not just a stone figure. And if you've gone traveling in other countries, it's just not a stone figure. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, it tells us, Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. And then in verse 20 and 21, Paul writes, he writes this, The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not God. And I do not want you to become shares in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And that's what he is speaking of in the context of idolatry that the Gentiles had sacrificed things to. They are sacrificing it to demons. And behind every god and idol, there is a demon. And that's why, that's why you don't do things. And some Christians think it's okay. Oh, my family does this little ritual or whatever they say. And they, they put the little oranges there and this little altar. And they bow down to whatever. And they say it's okay as long as I don't believe in that sort of a thing. But no, it's not okay. For there are demons behind the idols that are there. It's the worship of a demon behind that idol. People do all sorts of things. Dabbling with false gods and with dabbling with the occult. They say, oh, it's just fun or entertaining or I don't, I, I don't believe it, so it's okay. And that's what the time was here when it says, consult the mediums and the spiritists. That's what people would say to the people who were faithful in Isaiah's time. They would say, why don't you go and talk to a medium? Why don't you go to a palm reader? Why don't you go to a spiritist? Why don't you go to somebody who would consult with the dead? Those necromancers. Why don't you go and talk with them? And they were living in a time of sorcery, of witchcraft, of superstition. People were fascinated by that, just like people, some are fascinated by that today. So you can understand, perhaps, what the, what the difficulty that a, a godly Christian would have during the time of Isaiah. They would say, I, I want, and then their friends would pressure them, perhaps. And that's why Isaiah prophesies and he says, to the law and to the testimony, kind of a, a praise, hooray. If they say what, they don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no light. They don't know. You run to the word of God. You have the law and you have the testimony. Run to the word of God. Run to the word. Because people will say, why don't you consult the medium if you want to know this? Why don't you consult the, uh, your horoscope? Why don't you consult a zodiac calendar or whatever it is? People are so persuaded to, to move away from God and to worship idols. That was the time that he prophesied in. And they were distressed. No matter what they did. It says, continues on. They'll pass through the land, these people will. Those people who are the, the spiritists or those who would be the false teachers. Pass through the land, hard-pressed, famished. They will turn out when they're hungry. They'll be enraged and will they curse? They'll curse their king as well as their God. You know, people who do not believe in God will still curse God when things go wrong. It's funny. The irony of it all. They don't want to follow God, so they raise their fists to God. And when they've cursed God and they've cursed their king, they've cursed their ruler, then they curse what? And they look to the earth, it says... But distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, there's just basically emptiness. When you look not to God, there's just emptiness in life. Yet they're angry people, frustrated people, people who aren't fulfilled. And they turn and try and find it. If they can't find it in their ruler or their circumstances, they try to find it in the things of this earth and the things of this world. 
It's in the backdrop of this spiritual sinful decadence that apostasy occurred and idolatry and superstition and the blackness of that time that he gives the prophecy of the Savior in verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no more gloom, it says, for who was in anguish. You see the prophecy says there'll be a time there's no more gloom. There'll be a time, because in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. You know what that means? You see, and you picture in your mind the land of Israel, and you have on the north, you have the Sea of Galilee, and underneath the Sea of Galilee there's a river called the Jordan River. And in the south of Jordan River, there's the Dead Sea that it flows into, and it's called the Dead Sea because there's... Nothing that lives in there. Maybe a few microorganisms or whatnot, but that's about it. They call it the Dead Sea, and there is no outlet to the Dead Sea, so it's all not fresh water, and there's, there's salts and other minerals, high-end minerals. You can float on there. It's so salty without having to swim. And you, you have the Sea of Galilee that's up north, and around the Sea of Galilee, there were tribes, two tribes that were given. to Two tribes. One was given to Naphtali, and one was given to Zebulun. Right around the Sea of Galilee. Because it was farthest north, though, it was those two tribes that faced the brunt of Assyria, which came down. The Assyrians came down and they wiped and out and decimated the land and laid it waste. They decimated the land and they were, they were heavy. On their warfare, they were a a wretched people who would kill their captors and decapitate them and put their heads on stakes and cover their, 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 their shields and things like that with blood. And they would use psychological warfare as they marched and marched in step so that it would thunder on the ground and so their enemies would, would run in fear before they got there. They were merciless They were a cruel people who came to Zebulun and Naphtali and wiped them out. So if you came from a place like that, it just didn't leave a very good taste in your mouth as to who was from Zebulun and Naphtali. It was like as if somebody came and said, oh, I was born and raised in Sodom. You just don't have a good taste in your mouth. And furthermore, the prophecy says, well, in previous times, he treated those two areas with contempt. But later he'll make it glorious. And not only that, it says that it will be on the other side of the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. Of the Gentiles. Remember, this is to the Jews. This was to the Jews that the Savior would come to Galilee of the Gentiles. You see, the Gentiles were hated by the Jews. There was extreme discrimination against them. You're a Gentile. I'm not going to associate with you. And yet a lot of Gentiles lived around the Sea of Galilee. So they would live in that area as well. And so it was called this area of the Gentiles. And so why does he do that? It's because Jesus came. You see, Jesus came not simply for one people group, not simply for one people, not simply for one race. It wasn't, he wasn't come for the Jews. He didn't come for Judaism. He wasn't born exclusively for him. He was born so that people all over the world could hear. So don't be shy about Christ in this season. 
Because Jesus came to be born into a land that perhaps was of contempt. Galilee of the Gentiles. And it says in verse 2, this prophecy of hope, those who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Look at Matthew 4, verse 12. Matthew 4, verse 12. To 17. There's a fulfillment of the prophecy here. In the New Testament times, it reads to us as Jesus came against that darkness of sin. It says here, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. He came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From the time you see Jesus came to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the prophecy was fulfilled here when these people who would be blessed by the coming of the Messiah to the Gentiles as well. And time and time again, the Old Testament presents Jesus coming to a time when the land was dark. When there was little hope. When there was sin that was pervasive and the people would see a great light and that light would shine upon the darkness of men and people would, though what, reject the light. It says in John 1.11, He came to His own and those who were His own did not receive Him. And so whom did He go to? He also went not only to His own, to the Jews, but He also went to the Gentiles. And He comes to you and I. And He comes to you and I. And He comes and calls, will we accept the Word and would we accept God? Not to be angry at God like these individuals would, to shake their fist at God, but would they accept God? Would they reject Him like most of the world does? Quote from Charles Colson in his book, Against the Night, writes, Social critic Russell Kirk, a divine decadence as a loss of an aim or objective in life, Men or women will become decadent when they forget or deny the objects of life and so fritter away their fears and trifles or debauchery. End quote. You see, people, we forget the object of life. And so we invest ourselves in the frivolous things that have no eternal significance and people will do that. When they don't love Jesus and their heart is not captured by the Savior, by what Christmas is, is, it becomes a shopping spree. It becomes that which is not about Christ. It becomes something that is not about God. And you lose sight of Christmas and it becomes happy holidays or ho, 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 or whatever it might be. Because life without Christ, what a waste it is. A life that is wasted on Frivolity, the superficial, the things that will entertain us, the things that will not mean anything in two years as the gifts are put away that we get. Jesus came during a time of darkness. He came to the faithful and He came as a fulfillment of prophecy of the coming Savior. 
And the joy that Christmas is and the joy that salvation brings doesn't come as a result of having everything that we want for Christmas. Having all of our wishes fulfilled. The joy of Christmas comes because those who walk in the light respond to the light. Who come to the Savior and walk in obedience to God. And that's the joy that will come. Not the carols, not the gifts, not having family and friends around, although that may and very well does help. But the joy that lasts is the joy that is in the heart. One who comes because they have a purpose in life, and that purpose is to follow God. Because having a purpose in life alleviates one from pursuing the superficial, pursuing happiness as an end. As one non-Christian told me just a few weeks ago that they wonder what the purpose in life is all about because they believe in evolution. Completely different from another young man who came to me when we were serving in Mexico and he said before he left the camp, quote, before I felt I had no direction in life, but now I believe I can do something great for God. And quote, he had a purpose. To serve God, to love God. And the hope is that no matter how deep and how dark our our problems are, no matter how dismal it looks and no matter how dark the heart is, Jesus can come and bring light and life and joy. Because He is a Savior. That is the hope of Christmas. That is the Savior that has come. And that's the message that we share. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what an exciting time, O Lord of the year, because of the hope that you bring. I pray, O Father, look into the hearts of people here. You can see, Father, their hearts. You can see, Father, what they struggle with. You can see my own. And Father, I pray that you would bring hope and encouragement, that you would bring joy and that you would bring light to hearts that are discouraged and that you would bring salvation to hearts that have not given themselves to you and turned to follow you. So God, save those who are here who do not know you, and I pray, O God, that you would bring joy in the meaning of Christmas to those perhaps who have lost it. We thank you, Father, may you be honored. In Jesus' precious name, amen.